You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Well, hello, hello, my lovelies. Welcome to another episode of Ginger Argy. I am your host, Trisha Stewart Mann, and I am so very happy to be back with you guys. I've missed you all so much. Going to be putting up some more shows lately, so thanks for sticking with me through the break. I have somebody that most of you know today, and I'm going to do a traditional interview. Not really. I have Christopher Spangle with me. How are you doing, Chris? I don't know that the anarchists know me, but some libertarians do. Well, it is funny because I thought of that. Obviously, a lot of people that would listen to my show or know me do know me from the We Are Libertarians Network, but also a lot of people aren't familiar with it because it's not um, one of those niche libertarian networks. A lot of the listeners are kind of your everyday average working class people that might be a little bit interested in politics. Isn't that crazy how like our audience at the network is so much different than like traditional libertarian podcast audiences? I think that's actually really awesome because it's an opportunity which doesn't come often to libertarians to reach out to people that might not have heard of it before, which means we can't be complete assholes. (laughs) Well, when do I start? (laughs) When do I stop? I mean, (laughs) it's worked for me so far. Yeah. So actually, I obviously met Chris through, uh, you know, libertarian networks and things a while ago and eventually um, was doing some anarchist stuff. And it wasn't a great fit for me as far as like the platforms I was using for my show. So I joined the We Are Libertarians Network. Chris is the founder. Um, If you've ever listened to the main show, the Chris Spangle show or any of uh, the other hosts shows, uh, if he's on there, you'll hear the traditional, he's a 15-year veteran of politics and media. But I thought it would be cool to do an interview with Chris and kind of go into some other stuff that he's interested in um, and maybe some things you don't know about him. Oh, this is dangerous. Yes. Yes. So I, well, That's of course, good because you know, I'm barely interested in libertarianism anymore. So. I, know. <laughs> I I thought about that. I did. I Obviously, it's part of your past and part of what you do, but that's not the entirety of who you are. I mean, I care about it, but you know, it's enough already. Yeah. And, I, and I, I've kind of come to that point, even as an anarchist, I very much enjoy my anarchist friends that pretty much do everything else besides preach about anarchy. They're my favorite. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, you've been in politics and media for a long time, and it's probably more than 15 years now. Maybe you just don't want to age yourself. No, it's almost it's uh, started my first campaign in 02, got my first radio job in 2004. So we're getting close to 20 years. So you grew up in Plainfield, Indiana, which is that that's a suburb of Indianapolis. Yeah, right? it's out by the airport. Um, <laughs> that sounds so bad. It, it isn't. It was a great place to grow up. And no matter what Miss Pat says, it's an awesome town. My 20th year reunion is May 21st. Uh, and I'm excited to see everybody I went to school with. I loved school. If I could go back, like sometimes I get I get sad when I think about the fact that I can't go back and be a kid again or go back to school or go back to my childhood like before 15 after 15 not as much but before 15 before my parents broke up we had a great child you could ride your bike everywhere like ride to the baseball card shop right ride to the bookstore mm-hmm. ride to the library go play with friends uh, i was like a, 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 and it was 30 minutes from downtown it had like gas stations and restaurants and and a mall when i was in high school you know kind of like a bigger town like 40,000 50,000 people but it was kind of ringed off it was kind of closed off so it had like a very small town feel so i loved i love plainfield it's it's not the same because it's grown so much but 
man, what a great education. What a great like childhood I had there. No, I, I grew up in a suburb too, not quite as big, like around 30,000. I had a pretty good childhood too. So um, those were great days before the internet became, you know, was in everybody's home. Yeah. And before social media kind of took over your, you know, your adolescence and teen years. Um, so one thing you wanted to be growing up, and I know this just because you're my friend and obviously I'm on your network, is that you always aspired to be a radio host. Mm-hmm. And we both came from the kind of a conservative, maybe neoconservative background. I know you were a big fan of Glenn Beck and might still be. Oh, yeah. No, I listened to, uh, <laughs> I haven't listened to Glenn in a long time. And I tuned in about a month ago, and within 10 minutes, I was like, oh, this Great Reset is bad. Like, he, you know, it's just, he artfully explained the Great Reset in, like, a five-minute span on the radio with just such great art and great writing. Like, you know, what he's what he has built over the years, he's just, uh, when you are in an industry with people and you see you just have a different insight than other people, right? So I work for a Radio Hall of Fame show. I work for the same... I've talked to Glenn Beck's people, like, I, you know, because I do some some of the similar stuff that they did. We both came from Premier Radio Networks. So, like, you just see what he's been able to build, and you just go, man, this guy's just on a whole different level than so many other people. And I've, I've seen that since 04. So, yeah, I'm, I'm a huge Glenn Beck fan, in, in the way that he does his craft, not always his, his policies or whatever, like what he talked about, but felt the same way about Rush. Rush, yeah. you know talk radio, you know how good he was. Yeah, um, that was kind of leading into my next question and some of what I don't think I've really heard you speak on publicly. Like some of your biggest influences, obviously you're a libertarian. You don't really fall, play that left and right game, although you're sort of a minarchist. Um, no, I'm definitely, are- I'm definitely like a Mitch Daniels Republican. I'm a limited government Republican. <laughs> Please don't. I without without the war mongering. Like, well, so who were your biggest like radio influences growing up? Because obviously we didn't have a lot of like social media influencers or podcasters yet. Yeah. But that was kind of the space that they would have been in. You know, had they been in that time? Yeah, Bob and Tom were huge for me. Obviously, you got Bob and Tom here and here, and that's who I work for now. And I dreamed of like, I mean, I was listening to their tapes. They have sixty comedy albums. And it's a show of like a group of people sitting around chit-chatting, and it's a funny show, and it's not political in any way, shape, or form. I'm kind of a freak there in that I am political, um, and they've been so nice to let me do my my podcasting BS and be mainly political online, uh, because they avoid it like the plague there. It's just sort of a good time, and, and I grew up listening to it, walking to elementary school, listening to Shirtless Girl, and you know, prison bitch and all these horrible things. And I always joke that Tom's paying for my therapy because he warped me so much. That's definitely one of my main radio influences. I think I got into talk radio. My grandma, Mosh, she's uh, still with us, but has had Alzheimer's for about the last 15 years. So, you know, she's kind of not here, but very strong woman, very opinionated woman, Republican precinct woman. Um, you know, she helped raise me, so we were driving around, bebopping around in her Mazda Miata, going to O'Malia's, listening to Rush Limbaugh, you know, with her going, oh, these liberals. I just can't believe it. It's terrible. Um, and I think that's really kind of what set my template in terms of, like, wanting to do talk radio, because I wanted to please somebody that meant so much to me. It's also why I like feisty women. Um, it's it's why I like opinionated women. Reagan's very... And you married one? <laughs> I married one, yeah, you know, and... I'm not afraid of women, uh, like a lot of other libertarians. You know, I wish we had more females on the network, like yourself, uh, that that were 
feisty. Um, uh, so that, that was big. When I got into like college, I really got into podcasts in 2005, like right away. And the Mike O'Meara show, I listened to a lot of talk radio shows, a lot of comedy shows. Um, I listened to a lot of Christian talk radio, a lot of political talk radio, but I mainly listened to like comedy talk, like Adam Carolla when he was on the air in LA, uh, listened through podcasts, Don and Mike in Washington, DC, Bob and Tom, Howard Stern when he went to Sirius, Bubba the Love Sponge on Sirius, and... I I always loved, like, Don and Mike, when they split up, became the Mike O'Meara Show, and they started a podcast in 2007. And I listened to the first thousand episodes of that. And it was my biggest influence in We Are Libertarians, more than anything else, because the shows that I liked to listen to were, like, a bunch of guys sitting around talking about things, busting balls. Um, you know, locally, uh, Dave the King Wilson had a talk radio show that I loved, and it was him and a bunch of guys just sitting around busting each other's chops and having fun and talking about current events, but not taking things seriously. And so when I started We Are Libertarians, that's what I wanted to do. I mean, and then the evolution, that DNA is still there. It's a little more serious than it used to be. Um, there's not as much kind of like goofing off as there used to be, but that's just do sort you, of... Do you think that comes from just growing up and maturing? Yeah, I think the times are a lot more um, serious and I'm on kind of a path where when Greg left the show, who was just naturally really funny, uh, and, and he carried the intellectual load for the show for the most part. I was just kind of building the network, doing the tech stuff, goofing around, and I had to start doing my own homework. And I, I always have been political and love like libertarianism and politics and all that stuff, but I never was like, I was a socialite <laughs> like i gathered people around i gathered people to the lp i gathered people to this and i had to start kind of like figuring out what i believed and taking it more seriously as more people listen to me so like i have a very you know like here's my my book cart you can you, the <laughs> listeners can't see it but like you know there's probably 40 books on there that i i read three to four hours a day and so i think when you kind of have that intellectual diet it comes out because you got so much more you want to say because you're putting more in your head um, and it's a little harder over Zoom and StreamYard to kind of do some of the silly stuff. You know, when everybody was coming to the house, it was a lot um, lighter. And it's and it, and it it's harder to do that over, over uh, StreamYard. So we still have fun. We still have a good time. And that DNA is still there. But when you want to talk about influences, it's Bob and Tom, Don and Mike, Howard Stern, you know, and Glenn Beck. I mean, those are probably the tops in terms of like people that I listen to every day for decades and, and just like, and Bubba the Love Sponge too. He, he's this crazy guy from Warsaw, Indiana, who was the most fined by the FCC, like did things like when, when shit hits the fan and he'd take one of his staffers that was in trouble, put him in front of a fan and throw buckets of shit into it, you know, or like just like crazy redneck. He just had the big girl nationals out of his track. Where he had girls over like four hundred pounds, like doing stunts and things. <laughs> like, it's just inappropriate, horrible things. And so I think that's where I kind of get my irreverence from is just like listening to all these things for my entire forty, thirty-eight years of life, like just comedians and irreverence and co you know comedy podcasts and all that. You know, I'm I'm a I'm a Christian conservative person, but I love trolls and I love shit posting. So in that vein, and I ask a, a lot of my guests this, regardless of where they fall on the political spectrum, do you think there's a space for that type of humor anymore? Hell yeah. I think it's, um, 
I tend to think that obviously we have like real problems with freedom of speech. We're on on the left and the right. You look at the right banning books in schools over, you know, little Mary the lesbian in your math book and we got to toss this you know and then on the on the left with you know social media and and just what we live through with covid i think these are huge huge problems but i also live in the real world and don't live on twitter all day and i find that um having connection to the bob and tom audience to the pat down audience uh to non-political audiences of an immense size gives me a little bit more perspective than a lot of maybe other libertarian podcasters that just have their own dashboard of people who think and look just like them. And people are way more willing to have conversations with each other, to be forgiving of nonsense than like the internet is. I, 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 I'm not going to say that a lot of that stuff is overblown, but I think the, the level of problem that if you spend all day on Twitter and Facebook and you don't get out and talk to your neighbors, you don't have like other parts of your identity. If you're just kind of like only consuming media that is meant to scare you from the right or left, you really think we're in deep trouble. But if you go out and you're in your neighborhood and you take your kids to the park or to school, you, you don't think it as much, right? Like it doesn't affect you as much because People are on the left are just as tired of white progressive women <laughs> as anybody else. Amen. Uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like if you if I talk to the the pat down audience, which is largely black, like they know how to take a joke. Like they're they're they don't understand why white people are so sensitive, anyways. Right? So uh, they're not awash in CRT waiting to take over whitey. Like it's just not there. It's it doesn't ring true if you really get out and talk to people by the hundreds a day some in some cases like i i'm fortunate to do a lot so yeah i think comedy is there and you see it in the types of media people are choosing people would rather watch tom segura or joe rogan on youtube than they would cnn they'd rather pay five bucks a month for a podcast on patreon to get bonus shows than they would for cnn plus like the the preachy this is how it is. You, how dare you not have a Ukrainian flag pin type media? Just does, it. It's it's like when people talk about how much power the media has. I'm like, when? I'm. I, I mean, I'm. I'm working in an industry that when I started in 2004 at this lowest rated AM station, 50th in the 50th marketplace, uh, we had 13 people working on it. It's now in a closet and hasn't had anybody directly on the air for years. Um, I'm in a building that has, it's built for like 85 people and there's 10 people that work there back. You know, I mean, I work in mainstream media and there's never, there's never been more opportunity for everybody, but there's also never been more parody. Um, you know, the, the podcaster is on an equal footing with an institutional television broadcast news outlet. So, so in that vein, do you think a lot of like what we believe this large corporate media, their power is more illusionary and yeah. that we're feeding into it? Yes, absolutely. No, it's yeah. absolutely true. Like, I'll give you an example. So I, I do this podcast and I have thousands of people listening to me a week and um, across my different podcasts, you know, the pat down's huge. Um, and I did this, I did this uh, public affairs radio show. 
heard by hundreds of people a month, (laughs) (laughs) but it was on the air. And so my wife goes to meet with some, uh, one of her many attorneys and they ask what I do. And she says, well, he hosts a public radio show. You know, he works for Bob and Tom and hosts a public radio show. Not he hosts a podcast that thousands of people listen to. She chose the one that had institutional lift. Mm -hmm. And so people that are on the magic box, people that are, are, are parts of institutions are taken more seriously like if I if I were doing my podcast and we were on the Reason Podcast Network, it would carry more weight than the We Are Libertarians Podcast Network, which is a ten year old startup. Um, you know, and likewise, if you started your own Libertarian Podcast Network now, you'd be ten years behind me. Um, so I'm I'm working on growing an institution because those institutions are important, um, but we tend to give too much credit to people that have that blue check mark, the people that draw a paycheck. Because what is somebody who's a reporter for a local TV station that has the blue check mark? This is somebody that has the same or less education than you and I do. They go and they work for a news outlet. They work 40 hours a week um, reading you know, statements from the local police department and calling people and going out and like shooting their own segments. Or just reading AP. Kind of reading AP, like... <laughs> You know, they, they, they are given no magical special knowledge that you and I cannot access. You and I have every ability to access, access everything. It's just that they are on the magical box and you and I are not. But what the internet has afforded us is the chance to be on your Facebook feed or your YouTube channel every night at 7 p.m. if we want to be. We just have to put in the work. Um, and you become more important. I would bet you that my stuff has more people reading. Before I got kind of shadow banned the last couple months... I'd bet you my stuff is being read by more people than are reading the the political columnist of the Star, the mm-hmm. local newspaper, you know. And there, there's definitely more people listening to Rob Kendall on WIBC here locally than is reading James Briggs at the Star. Um, so when you work in it and you see it from the behind the scenes, you have a much different perspective because you see the man behind the curtain. You see how these companies fudge things like. You know, Rob will put out, oh, well, uh, WIBC is is uh, number one in the ratings, and it's 12 plus. So you at home who are ignorant of that go, wow, he's number one in the ratings. And I'm, and I'm going, why would you use 12 plus? That's embarrassing. Why would you ever say that you're leading in that? That's a, a dog crap metric. Like, you know, so you it's just like ha- the J.D. Power Associate Award. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. Like, exactly. You know, so everybody. Oh, you're uh, congratulations. Literally nobody cares about 12 plus that actually buys anything. You have no real power. It's a dumb number, but you pick and choose the numbers that make you look good. And so Joe Rogan has 50 million people listening to a podcast episode like the one with Malone and everybody loses their mind in the media because they know that they don't have that kind of reach. Mm-hmm. They are not gatekeepers. The, lo- the like your local TV station, TV, you know, newspaper, these are not gatekeepers in the same way anymore, you know? So I I tend to look at it and I don't think that we need the level of panic that we bring to all this stuff because what we have is an opportunity. And instead of looking backwards and focusing on what has been done and how corrupt these places are, but it's like marketing. Like Tim Pool can go out and say that he's the next generation. Crystal and Sagad can say we're the next generation. We need to beat up on the old media. But like at some point, you got to bring something new and fresh. Like I can't tune into your show every day and hear you bitch about CNN. Like there's because CNN's irrelevant. Like it's talking to a hundred thousand people at any given time, and you know a shit tier podcast can do that. Yeah. So it's 
it's it's really like working in the industry you just get a better perspective of how much better off we all are if you just are consistent keep putting out good stuff and growing as a broadcaster you're gonna have more people than cnn like even even people who aren't in the top 200 of news and politics like us we are reaching you know tens of thousands of people a month um so across our different shows and that's there's tremendous responsibility and power in that well before we take a quick break for our sponsors um that made me think of two things that you said number one that's a great analogy for government and the people oftentimes government pretends they have more power than the people just the same way the media i dare you to lock me in my home trisha i dare you i said it at the time if you (laughs) if you're not a pussy you can keep your business open yeah they can't Uh, they can't shut everybody down they don't have the power they don't right that's the other thing about working power as we give them exactly if you comply then they can do it but if you don't comply and everybody takes a mask off on the plane mask mandate over Yes. Right? Like, so if we stop listening to the corporate media, not 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 that I don't listen to larger media sources, I think it's important to be well-rounded and informed, even if I don't believe what they're saying. But Dennis said something, um, I wouldn't say a few months ago, and we have a, you know, a host chat, and it really struck me. He said, well, this person isn't a journalist because it was a podcaster. And you said, yes, they are now. And yeah. that really proves your point. It's like, who is a journalist? It's somebody that tells truth and brings information. Yes, there can be false prophets and journalists out there. Of course, there's always going to be those. But just to be considered uh, because you're on a mainstream media source or you're with the establishment means you're a journalist and the other person isn't. Well, that's not necessarily true either. You know what institutional journalism does? They go and check with the government to see if it's true or not. Yeah. What kind of journalist are they? Like that Not is like what the old school ones. <laughs> no, they call a local like a journalist. They don't really do anything differently than Joe Rogan does. Joe Rogan's just more transparent about it. Mm-hmm. Journalists, you know, and, and Reinhold would say, "Oh, well, they have fact checking." The New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Wall Street Journal have fact checking. Everybody else doesn't have a copy editor like they used to. Every if you're working at the Star, it may get read by an editor. You may have your story assigned to you by an editor. But it's not going through fact checkers in the same way that it used to be. And how many times have stories that they've had to redact, which they barely even print anything about or on, you know, the, on um, the Internet or anything like yeah. when they've just said something false and then they just let it go anymore. There's no fact. There's no redaction or anything like that. Yeah, I just did an interview with Abdul Hakim Shabazz, my mentor. Abdul started IndiePolitics.org. He's a lawyer. He's a politico. He's been in this town for 20 years as a journalist. He's the dean of political journalists. And he doesn't have an editor. He picks and chooses what he prints. And he prints, you know, he has the cheat sheet, which is kind of a gossipy rag of blind items. And, you know, rumor says that, you know, Chris Spangle's going to run for mayor. Well, you know that Chris Spangle had him put that in there. Like, (laughs) but the reality... That was Andrew Bowman. Right. Like, what difference is there between Abdul and Kevin Rader at WTHR? The, his editor has no idea who who he's talking to or what he's doing. It's Kevin Rader picking and choosing what he's putting on the air, too. There's just this perceived level, and this is kind of where we're at with government and institutions. There's this perceived level of due diligence. That if I am a doctor and I see a problem with a child, I have to do my due diligence, send it to CPS, and CPS will do their due diligence and investigate what's happening. And then I will feel good because something will have been done. And what will have been done is absolutely nothing because the CPS people can't do anything. If if there is a, a real problem, they actually can't do anything because the person who's doing bad stuff lawyers up. 
or there's some sort of administrative trick that everybody gets out of. If you're a parent going to CPS because you're, you know, in, in the case of one friend, like their daughter was being abused by their ex-husband and CPS just couldn't do anything. They feel really bad, you know, and journalism is much the same way in that you feel like there's editors checking this stuff, but it's really up to the journalist. So what's the real difference between, you know, Abdul, who's going out and sitting in beverage alcohol licensing board meetings and the TV reporter that isn't there's there's a difference in that Abdul has better information and Mm -hmm. is a better journalist. What's the difference between what a journalist does and Joe Rogan, Joe Rogan, a journalist doesn't know anything. They're a general, a generalist, unless they're on a specific beat and there's their tasks with like covering education. Right. But even then, you're you're somebody that kind of has a generic interest in something and has to find out from other people what's going on. So they go and they talk to one or two or three different people for a story. And they try to figure out what's going on. And then they write that up. And then they put maybe a couple quotes from a couple of those people in it. And they've had conversations and regular contact with people before they build that story out. And then they file it. And then an editor looks at it. Joe Rogan goes and sits down with those people in public and has public conversations as opposed to private conversations. But he he can go and talk to like five or six people about the same issue, and he's doing nothing different than somebody that Mm -hmm. works at Washington Post. So the idea that, you know, podcasters are journalists, and that the single best preparation for doing a podcast is my journalistic training. It's my time as a reporter with Abdul. It's learning to read and research and write and putting together these shows that I do from, from that background. And like, I, I mean, I'm literally like, um, reading, I'd read, uh, 74 pages in this book yesterday. It's called interviewing by, um, Gail Sidorkin. And it's basically a guide for journalists and writers about how to conduct interviews and do, you know, journalistic work. And it's basically the best guide you can have if you're going to start a podcast. I, I also think, Chris, something that you have that some other libertarians and maybe not all of them have is maybe being able to look at sources that are on, you know, different opposite ends of the spectrum and gleaning truth or, you know, discounting BS. some of it. Whereas somebody that is independently right or left or whatever can't necessarily do that. So I think that's something special, especially at the We Are Libertarians Network, because a lot of times you'll even play the devil's advocate because you want to be able to put out all the information there. And I think that's why people should definitely listen to your show, which is the flagship show, Chris Spangle Show, because it's not just like, hi, we're talking about philosophy. It's like, here's some current events. I'm going to give you both sides or all sides, and then we're going to try to find as much truth as we can. So I want to just take a real quick mid-show break, and we're going to come back with Chris, and we're going to talk about some of the other things he does besides political stuff, which is my favorite because Chris is on a very popular comedy podcast. So, uh, well, hello, hello, my lovelies. Welcome back. I am here with Christopher Spangle, otherwise known as Chris Spangle. Hello. (laughs) Hi, Chris. Um, We talked a little bit about his... um, background in media, some of what he does in the libertarian space, didn't touch a lot on his political career, because I think most of you know that, that follow politics. But Chris is up to some pretty cool stuff lately. So if you know him from the libertarian space, you might not know that he's the co-host on probably one of my favorite comedy podcasts. And by the way, libertarians, if you only listen to libertarian podcasts, you're really missing out on a lot of cool things in life. No, they listen to gun Um, gun podcasts and Bitcoin podcasts. Yeah, yeah, prepper podcasts, you know, that that sort of thing. But um, 
I love comedy po- podcasts. In fact, you just uh, introduced me to Adam and um, Dr. Adam Drew. and Drew. Yeah, it's a great. Oh podcast. my gosh, I have been missing. I love them. Um, so the pat down. Miss Pat lived in Indiana, and Chris, I think you met her through Bob and Tom, which is your day job. Yeah, she lived in Plainfield, where I grew up, Yeah, and she came to my brother's open house at graduation because him and Ikea were friends. So I met her years ago, and I don't remember it, but I met her through Bob and Tom. So give us a little background about how you started that, like how your podcasting and media career kind of wedged you into that, and like, you know, what's happening with that and how you've grown there. Well, people say you know, you're an overnight success. And I say, no, I worked so long with nobody watching. (laughs) Um, And that kind of is the case here because, you know, Miss Pat wasn't like Miss Pat was going places and you knew she had raw talent, but nobody else did. Um, She kind of sold her story and a TV show at that point, but it hadn't been developed or picked up by anybody. Um, And now you fast forward to where she's at three years after we started the podcast you know, movie deal on Netflix, Netflix special, uh, TV show, you know, season two's just wrapping, um, successful podcast on all these interview shows. She's on a radio show in Atlanta. Like she's, she's on her way to becoming comedy royalty like she deserves. Uh, and I think the podcast is uh, responsible for a lot of it because she is the funniest person I've ever met. And she looks at life in a way like few other people do. And hearing her week in, week out, tell funny stories about her life, tell stories about just like meeting somebody at the mall, you know, fighting crackheads, you know, six months ago at her friend's beauty salon. Like, you you just like, you get to know a person with a podcast in a way that you don't get to know them through other mediums. Like, if you just go and see somebody for an hour of stand-up, you just spend an hour with them. You see them on a viral video from barstool sports like you don't get a sense of who they are like you do with week in week out listening to somebody like miss pat and it's built this hardcore audience that has given her a ton of opportunity she knows that she's appreciative of it i am too um obviously my career has not taken off in the same way so i am not as impressive (laughs) as miss pat but um yeah i mean when when she she and i met she's like joe rogan says i need to do a podcast i was like you're right you're hilarious you should do one it's this great home base to kind of build all this other stuff she's like well you want to come out and help me do it and i said sure me thinking like she wants me to come out and like run the board for her and produce it and do a lot of free work and she did but she was smart and <laughs> she that likes she, a good deal <laughs> she's smart in that she made me a co-host because she recognized that i was funny and Miss Pat's not the type of person who, like, thinks anybody's funny. But she thinks I'm funny. I make her laugh. Uh, and to be in the group of people that can make her laugh makes me, like, no matter how 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 much, how little talent I think I might have, like, I have to listen to that and kind of go, okay, well, this person who's a comedy legend in the making thinks that I have some chops. And I have chops because of... I'm a I'm a comedy writer basically through the day, you know, like working at Bob and Tom. My job is all the social media, trying to write, copy, edit all the YouTube things on the website, all that, trying to like find some humor there. So I'm a writer generally through the day, um, and I do have a lot a lot of podcasting. I mean, I've done thousands of hours of podcasting, and so when my opportunity arrived to be on a bigger platform, I was ready because I've worked on those skills that I needed to to shine when that opportunity came. Um, so, you know, 
transitioning, even though you've been, you know, done the digital media marketing and things like that for Bob and Tom, but being like a co-host on that. When you first sat in, I remember you talking to the group like about that experience. You were like, I didn't expect that, but that was cool. So how like how has your life changed since that started? I know you said obviously you haven't blown up, but I don't think that's true. I think you've gained a lot of respect, followers, you've gained a larger audience as a whole. I know just even through what you're doing there, I have a lot of people that are in that group with me um that started to listen to the network in my show that aren't even close to the libertarian sphere, but and it's been wonderful. I can't imagine what you've experienced. Yeah, I mean I if you if you uh, message me at 8 a.m. and I haven't responded, there's a really good chance I will never see that message again. <laughs> because between Instagram, my Facebook stuff, Facebook Messenger, Twitter DMs, like just the I think one big change is the amount of inbound communication. Um, not just from the pat down people, but from more the, the libertarian stuff, I think like turning that into a podcast network kind of made us look at, at, at a different level than we were before that helped a lot. Um, and then, then the Bob and Tom stuff, like I, I'm just sort of overwhelmed with the amount of people that talk at me every day. Um, it's a lot. And, you know, like if I sat down and showed you the DMS, you just kind of go, Oh boy, <laughs> this is overwhelming. Um, and, and so like, that's cool because you get to like have conversations with people if you want sometimes like people are very surprised that you ever message them back. I always try to like, at least react heart react or like give a thank you or something because I read everyone. Um, but you know, sometimes you get really heartfelt messages from people, um, because what you do benefits them in some way and you give them value and it's like really, really nice because in your head, you're not doing anything good. Like that's just kind of the nature of creative people is you think I am really fooling all of these people. Um, and so, you know, it's always nice to get nice notes and then, and then to kind of like surprise them when you write back. So that's one, by thing. the way, people that's called imposter syndrome. And I think Christopher Spangle might have it. I think it's fortunate <laughs> as, as Vaughn said, once you're the poster child for it. And I think that's the next thing that kind of how it's changed me is I've, you know, from Tom Griswold to Abdul, uh, to, you know, my, my business partner, Robert, to Miss Pat, to Dion, I'm I so, I've just had like a an amazing group of mentors over the over my life and you I'm now in a place where I work for and with success a lot of successful people and you see their habits and that kind of rubs off on you and Miss Pat especially you know I know that there's some of that imposter syndrome there we've talked about it in the past but I've watched it get just get squelched out <laughs> like she has strangled it to death as she has become more successful and has started to let herself feel like she deserves it because she now knows she deserves it. And that's kind of been helpful for me to watch too because nobody is a public person without that imposter syndrome. Like if you're a writer, journalist, a podcaster, a painter, you know, a politician, every single person in the public eye has that thing. I would say if you don't, there might be something wrong with you. Exactly. Yes. Like Donald Trump does not have that, which is why there's something wrong. And which is partly why I react so strongly to him is because I know the responsibility. I see what it, what a normal person should have and he doesn't have it. Um, but the people who become more successful are, are less likely to listen to that voice. 
And so you have to do things mentally to kind of kill that little voice in your head that says, why would you ever be able to do stand up? Who, who do you think should listen to you doing a history podcast? You know, who are you? You really need to pick one thing, right? So, and the more you don't listen to that voice, the more successful you become, the more people want to listen to you. Um, so, you know, not just her pushing me, but also her example, that really helped me a lot um, in, in kind of how I approach stuff. And then obviously, like, opening my life up to a large segment of black listeners and having them correct me um, or say, have you thought about this? Or, hey, did you see this story? Or um, a large, predominantly black and liberal audience has been very good for me because it's given me a completely different point of view that I missed uh, just as kind of like a straight white male Christian conservative libertarian living in the Midwest. I, th- I think you know. maybe that, that crack babies audience, which by the way, don't take offense in that because that's what they call themselves. So yeah. that's not me. Um, I think maybe they're not the type of uh, liberal audience that you're used to as a libertarian. They're more of like really honest, hardworking and funny people. They're, they're they like honest happen. liberals, right? Like yes. you nailed it because <laughs> if you think liberal, like you have this vision of like the fakertarian, that is what a liberal is. Just like the pink hair caricature that the daily wires concocted of liberals. Yeah. And so that's why I'm very much not on that train, even though there's a lot of money into just copying Dave Smith and Ben Shapiro. Um, a lot of audience there just like making up caricatures and then reacting to it. Um, but, I didn't go down that road because of this audience, because I have access to real people. <laughs> and, <Yeah. laughs> and and that's been, I think, um, hugely important for me because it's kind of kept me balanced. It's kept me sort of thinking like, I could say this, but like, what would my friend Blair think? She's She and I talk every day, and she's very much like, uh, I just don't know how to describe her. She listens to every We're Libertarians podcast. She listens to every Pat Down she and I are very in line. And then sometimes she's like, well, you know, we have to just destroy the patriarchy through force. I'm like, what? (laughs) Like stuff like that. And, you know, and so like, she's, you know, well, here's the reason we need reparations, you know, that sort of thing. And I'm, so so I kind of need that person to kind of go, here's, here's how other people think. And it's really been good for me. Well, maybe you're that person to somebody that's a liberal and thinks that every conservative is like Donald oh, Trump. Totally. Like in the last episode, you know, I got a little snippy because, oh, well, Easter doesn't matter because it's a pagan holiday, which is not true. Um, and I stood up for Christians and there was a pagan who was like, I really appreciate that you did that. And I think it ended up being a whole fight that I checked out of because I was busy yesterday. But like they there's a lot of that audience that their perspective of a libertarian or a conservative leaning white man is that caricature. Mm -hmm. He must be racist. He must be anti-immigrant. He must be anti-COVID. He must be, you know, and I try to be reasonable and thoughtful in everything that I do. I have my definite opinions, but Mm -hmm. I, I definitely don't want to force other people to live the way that I want them to live. And that has been, I think, eye-opening to a lot of people like Dion and uh, and other people who are like, all right, I get that libertarians aren't just like heartless, evil bastards. They just have a different way of getting there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it's been good for, for, for a lot of people to kind of hear like, oh, this dude doesn't want socialized medicine because he thinks it'll hurt more people as opposed to he's, he's greedy. You right. Know? So it's, it's brought libertarianism to an enormous amount of new people in a way that isn't like a caricature. And I really have been appreciative of having that ability. 
I, I appreciate that too. You actually like just as a friend um, and I would say coworker, I don't know, uh, had kind of brought me into that sphere and it made me rethink a lot of things that I once thought. And um, I really enjoy being challenged. I really got sick of You do like, a great job at being challenged. Let me tell you. <laughs> Nobody's more challenged than you. <laughs> no, I, I, I really, really have a disdain for echo chambers anymore. Uh, it's just not my jam. I, I, I just... I don't know, like, because we could stay there forever, and what will we achieve besides like a big circle jerk? Yeah, um, that's why Reinhold so, finds it so hard to stay in the group, and Brian Nichols is checked out because, <laughs> like, which we, I love them both, and well, I appreciate both of them pulling me each way. But like, like you know. Dennis, d- poor Dennis is just like we we savage him in that group for being a leftist because I am not a leftist, like, dude, he's a leftist, he's such but a like leftist. not the like the bad kind. Like, no, Dennis has a free enough mind to like understand, and he puts up with a lot of shit. I'm gonna tell I, I think I just don't like, re- <laughs> I'm not a reactionary person. I never have been, and I don't like it. I think it's yeah. mentally unhealthy for a person to be a reactionary. Are you just knee-jerk reactionary anti-Mises caucus? Are you knee-jerk reactionary anti, you know, uh, pro-COVID measure people? Like, uh, and I'm sure I'm react. I'm a reactionary against Al- Aldi's and geese. Uh, and I have my, well, we things, all have, we all have our issues, Chris, but I just think like there's, you're never going to eradicate, eradicate other people's opinions. You are only going to have to learn to coexist with them in some form or fashion. And you might as well kind of model that because you don't have a choice. And that's what a big part of the pat down is, is like, I would love everybody to be a libertarian, but Dion's going to be a socialist. Yes. I'd love, I'd love to be black, but I'm going to be white. <laughs> And so, like, we all just have to get along with how how the world is structured and made yeah. and figure out how to talk to each other in a good way. That's yeah. a huge part of the pat-down and a huge part of its attraction to me. I cry laughing every time. I love my friend Pat and Dion, but, like, there's got to be a fundamental cause attached to any project I'm spending time on. And for me, like, that kind of, like, ability to, to model that is is helpful, too. I think um, I think that... Of all the libertarian networks that we are libertarians is probably the most positive one out there. And obviously I'm biased, but um, I think that what you've done is built something that's grow stronger and stronger. I think of all the shows there. I think of all the people I know from there and they're the best libertarians and some anarchists that I know. Um, and so there are at least people you travel across the country to hang out with. Yeah, there are people I trust. So if I say, listen, you know, I've got a big issue and I need your help solving, or I've got a moral issue, or, you know, I just want somebody to listen, I don't think they're going to sit and rip me down. I think they're going to build me up. And those are the type of people that I care to know and associate with. Um, so what you built has been um, amazingly positive for my life, but for a lot of people. Well, and you. I love our listeners too, by the way. They're some of the most awesome. One day it'll pay there. off for me and I'll enjoy it. But until then. Yes. Yeah, so you can buy one of those houses that Christy Avery keeps telling you to buy. Oh, are those for me? <laughs> I don't know. She's like, this is only $600,000. I'm like, who is this for? I, today, I was literally <laughs> like, who is this for? Everyone's happy. You notice they all have like in-law or nanny suites. <laughs> I, just, I just noticed this. I'm, shout out to Christy. Anyways, thanks for letting me interview you today, Chris. It was a lot of fun. Obviously, this is your network that we're on, but I still want to tell you, uh, tell people where we're not going to talk you. comedians. Well, we were going to, but we're going to have to do a second show because right. we've, we're 45 minutes in. All right. That's fine. We're, we're both really long winded and that's okay. Both. Otherwise we wouldn't be podcasting. LOL. Um. <laughs> I just posted, I just posted this. It was supposed to be a conversation with uh, college students on my feed 
And once I realized in the first like two minutes that they had nothing going on, I was like, all right, my show. And I talked, I monologued for like 50 minutes. Hey, uh, can we be real and just say sometimes you're interviewing somebody and you realize you have to hold up their interview and that's like the worst thing. <laughs> in the world. Yeah, it rarely happens. Honestly, most people I can just trust to give a prompt to, but you know, those people exist and college students maybe don't have a lot of good ideas. No, anymore. it was great. They're super <laughs> sweet kids. It was so funny, but I like got done. And I was like, sorry, I didn't let you talk. <laughs> It was like, Chris lets college students interview him. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Chris, what are like, okay, so maybe people are are listening or from the network, but what are some things that they might not know about some newer projects you're doing? 2022 is the year of no new projects, but I've got several. Um, Yeah, I I was going to say, aren't you doing a whole podcasting thing? Yeah, so uh, I I really love to start things, and I'd love to have a staff of people to get all these ideas off the ground um, before I work myself to death. Um, but no, I've got you know I've got the pat down. I've got the We Are Libertarians podcast network and the Chris Spangle show. Spend most of my time on the Chris Spangle show, kind of like reading and prepping for that. But I do the history of modern politics with Matt Whitliff, who fortunately does most of the heavy lifting on that. And uh, it's a great show, and it's about the intellectual history of our political tradition here in America. And then Liberty Explained with um, Julia Geyer, and we her. take like <laughs> your questions for libertarianism and then answer them. And then I've got podcasting and platforms, which is my podcast about how I built all this stuff, how I how I think about digital media and, and how you can start one too. And it's just actionable tips from stuff I've learned over the last 20 years. Um, and I am getting back into the public affairs radio show at some point this year, because I just think it's really important to bring a spotlight to nonprofits. There's nobody really in, in Indiana that's doing that and doing it in the same way. And I had so much fun doing it, but I, it wasn't the right fit for me where I was doing it at. Um, so I'll be bringing that back too, just because I, I, you know, these like, 15 30 minute interviews with nonprofits you learn so much about what's going on and i use that show during covid to kind of illustrate the societal impact of closing schools of lockdowns you know and you got real world on the ground statistics and insights from people who saw the wreckage that was taking place um and it, i think it was more illustrative of than if i had just gotten on air and said this is ha- going to happen you know, yeah. it was like, it's much more impactful when Families First says 300% increase in suicide hotline calls, or Gleaner's Food Bank says three or four times the need, or 619 Sports says we, we can't do anything except deliver food with our trailers. Like, you know, so I just think there's a huge need there that I'll be getting back into that stuff. But you can find everything at chris-spangle.com. That's where you can find the links to all my different projects and uh, pick and choose what you want. I don't, I don't expect anybody but Christy to listen to all of them. <laughs> yes. Well, maybe a, a few more, but definitely yeah. we can always count on Christy. We love you, Christy. Yes, we do. So thank you guys so much for listening. I'm so happy to be back. This was very fun interviewing our network founder, the uh, Netflix superstar, Chris Spangle. <laughs> I do. Please tune in to Miss Pat, yes. Pat's comedy special to see my three minutes great. of stolen Fowler worth of fame. <laughs> no, I loved it. You guys should listen to that, by the way. Anyways, I want to close out the show and thank you guys as always and say peace, grace, love, and fuck the state. <laughs>